Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you here today. Um, I, I know I say this every week, and so I'm sorry for being repetitive, but I'm not sorry. Uh, we have been going through a series together called The Story. Uh, the story encourages us to look at the Bible as one uh, big story with one narrative that's flowing throughout with characters, with people, with things that move the story forward. Um, and so in this time right now, this morning, I would like for us to take a moment to review some of the things that we have learned. Is that okay? Can we review for a minute? Um, so first of all, the main character of the story is who? Is God, Right. Um, and, and here are some of the things that we have learned about God as a character in this story. Uh, God has always been. Uh, there was nothing before him. He created this world from nothing. He spoke it into existence. And this is sort of the main plot of the story, this point right here. God created humanity to be in relationship with him in a way that nothing else in creation could be. And we discover through the story that God wants more than anything to be known in this relationship. He wants to be the God of all humanity and he wants them to be his people. And we have also learned something interesting, which is that God is profoundly affected by the actions of humanity. God is not one who sits apart, who is just watching from a distance, who kind of doesn't really care what's going on. He didn't just set the world into motion and then go to Hawaii, right? God is watching all of these things. And beyond that, he is heavily invested in this relationship working out. Now, the other main character, secondary to God, is humanity, so here's some of the things that we have learned about humanity during the story. Uh, we are made in the image of God, and therefore we are a reflection of God. It's part of what gives us the capacity to have this relationship with him that God so desires. However, we have a tendency to put ourselves before God, to think of ourselves before we think of him. We know that humanity is capable of honoring God with the life that it lives. However, we have also learned that humanity does not really want relationship with God in the same way that God wants relationship with humanity. It's not that, and here's the, the sort of catch that we've seen throughout. It's not that humanity is against God. In fact, humanity loves God's. We love the idea, and humanity is constantly worshiping something, but humanity rebels against the one true God and has a hard time accepting Him as He is. And I want to suggest this morning that perhaps the reason why humanity is showing in the story that it has such a hard time accepting God is that the real, living, true God is the only God of consequence. And therefore is the only God that cannot be manipulated and made to do what we want him to do. The other thing we have learned is that humanity is extremely forgetful. Um, God does something for humanity. God delivers them. God saves them. God does something amazing for them. And they forget and do not remember in any sort of meaningful way. 
So here's what we've seen. We have these two things, right? We have God that so much wants relationship with man. We have man which is so often throwing off God. And humanity's rejection of God in the story is always a catalyst for negative change. It's always the catalyst for something bad happening in the story, uh, for something negative coming up. And the relationship between God and man, we see we're sort of trapped in this tug of war. And the only way that we can really characterize it, I think, at this point, is to call it a rocky relationship. It's difficult. It's hard. And it's not a mystery why. Again, God wants to be known. Humanity is constantly choosing other things beside him and doesn't seem to know him no matter what he does. So... God responds to this in lots of different ways. He kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden when they rebelled, but he did not cut them off from relationship. He dissolved his relationship with humanity as a whole by flooding the world, save one family who he, with whom he attempted to start over. When that didn't work, he started over again, choosing one family to be his, while he let the rest of the world go their own way. He made a promise, a covenant with Abraham that he would bless him and give him all that he needed. He blessed his people in a special way and did not bless the rest of the world in the same way. He delivered his people from Egypt in order to make them his own and lead them to the land that he had promised, but that didn't work out so well, and so he let an entire generation of people pass away before the next generation would have faith and rise up. He did not abandon his people when they fell into another destructive cycle. Instead, he did something interesting, which is he let them go their own way until they got so miserable that they called out to him for deliverance, and then he would come and be their God again until they wanted to go their own way, and he would let them go again. The most amazing thing that I have received from the study we have been going through is a glimpse into the character of God. Now understand what I mean by character. We often talk about character. Who God is. He is loving. He is graceful. He is all these things. But what I have glimpsed is God as a character. How he feels. What he experiences. What he sees. I don't know if you have been as surprised as I was about how much emotional language there is when it comes to God. We always view him as so separated, so above, so apart from us, but that is not the God of this story. This God is so invested in humanity that he gets angry, frustrated, hurt, brokenhearted. He makes choices at times because of those different feelings. But here is where he departs from us. His choices are always good and just, even if we do not like them. And sometimes he acts out in anger. Sometimes he corrects in ways that he wish he wouldn't. But more than that, the thing that truly shocks me about God is how patient and forgiving he is. The perseverance that he has to stick with these people that insult him in every way possible. And interestingly enough, this whole journey has put one story that Jesus told into more clear perspective for me. The story comes from Luke chapter 15. 
And if you've gone to church for any period of time, it's a story you're probably familiar with. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is the story we're seeing. The one who walks away, the one who abandons his father, the one who finds that the path he chose has led to destruction, the one who remembers that even the least in his father's house have it better than he does. The one who decides he's going to beg to go back. And the father who runs down the road to meet him. In a world where we debate the very existence of and reason for God, The one where we come and go and we forget and then we remember. What are we doing to keep God, as we talked about last week, on the door frames of our homes, on the gates outside, on our foreheads and on our arms? Did any of you change your phone screen this week? Shame on the rest of you. I just want to impress this upon us again. We must be intentional about keeping God in front of us. We must be intentional about keeping God in front of us because if we are not, we will run away again. And we want to break the cycle. Amen? So um, we looked a little bit uh, earlier this morning um, at some of the things that we have learned uh, about God, about humanity, about the story. And um, I want to, just for a moment, reiterate what we're seeing from a plot perspective. And, And I know that I say this a lot, but I want this to sink in. God, who is both the main character and the hero of this story, has been trying to have a meaningful relationship with humanity. Um, 
And he created humanity to be in this kind of relationship with him where he would be God and humanity, they would be his people. But as we saw earlier, the relationship has struggled from the very start, from very early on. And God, as we saw, has tried various things to try to make himself God, to try to be real to his people, to try to love them, to try to correct them, to try to punish them. He's tried all of these different things. And humanity has sometimes responded in positive ways and sometimes responded in negative ways. Last week we looked at the book of Judges. And we saw that there was a pattern that develops within the book of Judges. And here's basically how it goes. The people forget about God. So God gives them over to their enemies. Someone comes in and defeats them. They end up, um, their possessions are taken or they're taken to slavery or something like that happens. And the people live this way for a little while until they become really miserable. And like, like the son in the story we read earlier, the prodigal son, they say, hey, wasn't it better when God was on our side? Where is he now? Why isn't he helping us? So they call out to God, and then God hears their cry, and he raises up a leader, a judge, to help them uh, fight against their enemies and deliver them from whatever nation has oppressed them. And relationship is stored within the nation of Israel with God until they forget again. And you see this cycle repeat itself over and over and over and over and over again within the book of Judges. But in a lot of ways, you see this cycle repeat itself throughout the rest of the story. This one book sort of encapsulates what happens for the rest of the time, this pattern that you see that you see repeat over and over again. The people forget, God gives them to their enemies, they become miserable and cry out to God, God delivers them, they live with God restored once more until they forget. Now, I have a question for you that I want you to think about for a second, and I actually want you to turn to someone and answer this question here in a moment. If you were God which, thank goodness, we're not. However, for the sake of this exercise, if you were God, how would you be feeling about things at this point? Turn to someone next to you and answer that question. If you were God, how would you be feeling about things at this point? Take a moment to do that. Okay. So, we we are made in the image of God, right? which means that um, we have the capability of, of feeling and experiencing and knowing some of the things that God knows and feels and experiences. So how we feel might not be too far off from, from how God might feel about this. So if you were God at this point, how would you feel? Frustrated? Angry? Disappointed? What? Disgusted? Tearful? Heartbroken. Good. Yeah, I mean, you've, you would have, God has to be ex- extremely discouraged because humanity cannot seem to grasp what it means for him to be God. I mean, think about that for a second. They cannot grasp what it means for him to be God. Even though he has done all of these amazing things, it's just like it just keeps slipping through their hands. 
Got to be frustrated because humanity doesn't seem to learn from its mistakes. How many times do you have to repeat the same cycle before you realize, hey, this isn't really working? He's got to be hurt because they forget about him so quickly and so easily. I mean, that has to sting, right? That, that he does these things and it's almost like none of it ever happened. And he's got to be angry because it's not just like they forget, but they also choose to worship other gods. These silly statues and trees that they're surrounded by. When God has given them everything they need, they're going and worshiping these other gods. I think God does, in fact, feel all these things, and the story has told us that God feels all these things. But here's something that has to be truly perplexing to God. has to be weird, right? Humanity does not seem to realize what kind of a difference it makes to have God on your side versus not having God on your side. They, they, they cannot seem to wrap their minds around this. It would be sort of like you show up to a friend's house for dinner and you sit down and they make this beautiful vegetable, meat, all these different things. If you like steak, it's steak. If you like fish, it's fish, whatever. And you eat it and it's so delicious and you taste how good it is and you think to yourself, I want to eat this way all the time. Then you go home and you get hungry for a snack. So you walk out into the yard and you break a stick off the tree and you gnaw on it. Now we may laugh about that, but this is basically what the people of Israel are doing. With God on their side, they can live a life where they are receiving blessing and they are eating this wonderful meal day in and day out in relationship with God. But instead, it's kind of like, well, you know what? That food is so rich. I'm just going to eat this stick. Until they remember, oh, but I can have that again. And they go back to God. But this thing doesn't seem to be setting in with them. And think about the context of the judges, right? They go into the land of Canaan. No one can stand against them because God is on their side. And when they forget about God, what is the first thing that happens? God gives them over to their enemies, which means everyone stands against them. And they cannot stand for themselves. Until they remember, oh, we have a God who can take care of this because he already has. And God comes to their side and no one can stand against them until they forget about him. It's just a crazy cycle that God has to be sitting back and saying, what is going on? Like, how can you not see this? It is so clear and so different. To put it bluntly, having God on their side versus not having God was the difference between victory and defeat. It was the difference between freedom and slavery. And the only thing they had to do to keep God on their side was to remember all that he had done, acknowledge him as God, and trust him to be good and loving, to follow him, to let him be God to them. 
And yet they cannot seem to do this. And I wonder, maybe you wonder, how can God put up with this over and over and over and over again? I mean, within the book of Judges itself, it repeats multiple times the same exact thing over and over and over again. How can God live with this? Into the story comes a narrative that is important to help us understand. And that narrative is the story of a woman named Ruth. And Ruth is a story that we need at this moment. Our own frustration with humanity has built up a little bit, hasn't it? We, like God, are frustrated, we're angry, we're confused, even though we see ourselves in these stories It's hard when it's all laid out in front of you like this, in narrative form, about the choices that people make and the things that they're doing. But into this place comes the book of Ruth. Now, the events of the book of Ruth take place during the time of the judges. And we didn't read uh, any of the stories of the judges last week. We just read the introduction. But the book of Judges closes with two different stories. Um each focused on some unfaithful Levites who were supposed to be part of um, the religious lead at the time. In one, a Levite lives as a prominent idol worshiper. So he's abandoned God altogether. In the second, a Levite gives his concubine to be raped and murdered by fellow Israelites who were intent on raping him. These are the stories that the book of Judges ends with. So this tells us what about the people of Israel? They're in pretty bad shape, right? They are in pretty bad shape. The story of Ruth then comes into this place and time. And um, it opens with a very kind of interesting scenario. There's a man named Elimelech which is a great name. It just rolls off the tongue. Elimelech. And his name means, my king is God. And uh, he leaves his hometown, the town of Bethlehem, um, right in the middle of a famine. So there's a famine going on. There's no food to eat. (coughs) As we learn in the story of Joseph, when there's no food to eat, you go to where the food is. And so um, they decide to leave and go to a different place. Now, because this is in the time of Judges and because there's a famine in the land of Israel, what do we know has happened? Where are they in the cycle? They forgot about God and God gave them up. Right? That's where we know they are in the cycle. They forgot about God and God gave them up. Um, So Elimelech and his wife Naomi moved to the land of Moab. And Moab is is a place, we'll get to this a little bit later, but Moab is a place that was not liked or respected by anyone. So in terms of just choosing where to live, they went there for food, but it's not a place that any self-respecting Israelite would want to live. So they moved to the land of Moab, and their sons end up marrying Moabite women, which as we continue in the story, this is a big deal. And it's one of the things that keeps bringing down the Israelites over time is that they intermarry with people who do not believe in God. 
Because here's what always happens. When an Israelite person marries someone who does not believe in God, who ends up changing their belief system? The Israelite does. Almost every time. When they marry someone outside of their belief in God, they are always the ones who, who make the adaptation, who change and worship the other gods. So uh, Elimelech and Naomi, their sons married these Moabite princesses. And these are the wrong kinds of people for them to marry. So this is the start of the story, right? Israel is in famine. They flee to a country they're not supposed to be in. And then they marry women that they're not supposed to marry. Sounds about right, doesn't it? Sounds about right for everything we've seen so far. And this is where the story takes an even more strange turn. uh, Because disaster strikes. Uh, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And so she was left with her two sons who had married these Moabite women, Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both of her sons died as well. And Naomi was left without her two sons, without her, her husband, and just having her Moabite daughter daughters-in-law. And this news is disastrous for everyone, but it's especially bad for Naomi. It's bad for this reason. Um, The culture at the time was set up in very specific ways. And so it's not unlike in some ways how we are today, but today if, you know, when you get older in life, who takes care of you? Theoretically. (laughs) Your children, well, this was even more pronounced back then, that your children would take care of you. And so Naomi, as a woman within that culture, was reliant upon her husband to take care of her, to provide. They would have a land, they would have land and a home and all these different things. And when her husband passes away, then her sons, who would still be tied to that land and that place, they would step into the gap and they would take care of her. But then her sons died, which means, church, that Naomi is left with nothing. And I, and I hate to put it that way, but within that culture, as a woman who does not have a husband nor any sons, she's in bad shape. There are not a lot of options for her. Um, so Naomi hears that the famine back in Bethlehem has been, is gone, which means that where are we in the cycle? They've cried out to God. God heard them and delivered them. And now there is food back in the land. And so Naomi hears that there's food again uh, back in Bethlehem. And so uh, she decides that there is nothing for her there in Moab. If she's going to have any chance to survive, she has to go home and just rely on the kindness of whatever family is left uh, of being there in her hometown. Um. But she realized that she didn't have anything to offer her daughters-in-law. There was nothing for them. And so the best thing for her to do would be to just release them back into their homes. Makes sense, right? It's it's the best thing for them to do. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. 
Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go, she stopped urging her. Naomi told Orpah and Ruth to leave, but the two women said they did not want to leave her side. And this is a truly remarkable moment. It is a remarkable moment. Naomi had lived her life in such a way that her daughters-in-law wanted to be poor and destitute rather than leave her. We don't know enough about Naomi I wish we knew more. But she insisted that they leave, and she insisted for a good reason. If they wanted to get married again, they had to stay in Moab. There was no reason for them to go back to Israel. For one thing, there wasn't a really viable situation for them to go back to. Naomi actually did have a home back in Bethlehem. But there was no way for them to support themselves or to take care of anything. But more importantly, Naomi knew that no one would want to marry them. No one in Israel, back in Israel, would want to marry these two Moabite women. And then there's this other whole scenario which doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but let me, let me break it down like a fraction here. Um, she says, she's too old to remarry bear sons and have those sons marry Ruth and Orpah. As weird as it sounds, this crazy scenario was the only real option for them for a future with Naomi. If they stay tied to her, she doesn't have anyone else for them to marry. And so the only answer again within that culture, and we'll get to this in a little bit later, was for her to have more children. But Naomi makes a very sound observation. Number one, I'm too old to get married again. Number two, I'm too old to have children. Number three, if I got married today and had children starting now, are you going to wait until they become adults and then marry them? The whole scenario, and this is what Naomi is trying to do, the whole scenario of Ruth and Orpah going back with her is ridiculous. It makes no sense at all. It is the wrong choice. 
So Naomi couldn't make this happen, so she urged them to stay. And Orpah decided to stay, but Ruth refused. And the important thing for us to note is why Ruth refused. What would cause Ruth to give up her entire future to stay with this woman who had absolutely nothing to offer her? There were two reasons. The first reason is that Naomi had become like a mother to Ruth. We don't know enough about this, but Naomi had become like a mother to Ruth. And we know that because Ruth came from a royal family, she could have had a home to go back to, and yet she chose to stay in poverty with Naomi, acknowledging that Naomi would be her official mother from that point on. There was something in Ruth's relationship with Naomi that fulfilled a need that she had in her life, and from that time the need rose this fierce personal loyalty to Naomi. She would not leave her. But second, and this reason is just as important, Ruth had come to believe in God, capital G God, the God of Israel. She had come to believe in this God. And so she not only declared her loyalty to Naomi, but she also declared her loyalty to the God that Naomi served. Naomi and her family had introduced Ruth to God at some point, and Ruth in the end was willing to choose God over her own family, her own home, her own future, what others might have considered her best interests. God had been represented in such a way that Ruth felt drawn to him, and when faced with a decision to stay in her home and worship her own gods, remember what Naomi said about Orpah, she can go back to her home, her family, and her gods. Ruth refuses to do so, and in fact, even invites God into the conversation. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if I am ever separated from you. So she chose to leave and follow Naomi back to the land of her God, even promising to, be die, even promising to die and be buried next to Naomi. Now this, for us, again, this is a big deal. Not just for her to say, I'm not going back to my family, Not just for her to say, I'm going to follow your God, but for her to say, I will be buried with you in your land right next to you. This is a big, big deal. The place of a person's grave in that culture and time was really significant. It it identified the area he or she considered his or her true home. So when Ruth said she wanted to die and be buried where Naomi was, she was voicing her commitment to God, to people, the land, and to Naomi. It's a huge statement. It's a huge statement that she wants to do this. Okay. That's a lot of detail right there. There's a lot that's happened, but we need to step back for a second and put this moment into context. All right. What do we know about the people of God? They forget. God gives them up. They remember. They're delivered. They live with him. They fall away. They forget over and over again. In fact, Naomi and Elimelech are only in Moab because they're in the middle of that cycle. And into this context you have this irony of ironies, this crazy thing where a Moabite woman, who is not God's, by the way, is throwing her entire life in with the God of Israel and with Naomi. 
It is a statement of profound faith and belief in the middle of a time where the people forget who God is constantly. So the two women journey back to Israel. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about you, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. Keep that in the back of your head. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So they return back home and what do they not have? There's no food for them. And they have no income. They, they don't have anything. And so Ruth says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go behind the workers and get grain from this field. And so she goes. And whose field does she end up in? Boaz. Who was what? This is important. He was a relative. Okay. Does she know that he's a relative of Naomi? No. But she just happens to end up in this field, picking behind Boaz. Now, you get a little taste for this, but this is a dangerous situation for her. It truly is. She is not from Israel. She is from Moab. We already know that the Israelites do not like Moab. We'll get to a little bit more of that in just a minute. They don't like Moab. And furthermore, they've just come out of an oppression cycle, right? So God has restored them from when they were oppressed by someone else, which means at this time, though Israel is restored, who are they not going to like? Foreigners. And this foreign woman shows up and starts picking behind them in the field. It's not the safest of situations for her, but it just so happens that Boaz shows up. And he says, who is this? And he is super impressed by the way that she has worked that day. She's hardly taken a break. And then he's impressed by all the care that she has shown to Naomi. So he ordered 
that she be protected by him. None of the workers will touch her. Furthermore, she doesn't have to go somewhere else to get water or anything. She can get what they have there. And there is going to be more left behind for her to take. Now, what did Ruth say to Naomi when she made her pledge? May the Lord deal with me what? Ever so severely if I am separated from you. What does Boaz say to her at the end of this exchange? Listen to it again. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Who is protecting Ruth? God is. Why is God protecting Ruth? Because she chose him. She chose him. One day Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am Ruth. I, I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night. In the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Okay. We're going to get into some explanation here. But there's one word that should stick out to you from everything that Boaz just said. And you know what that word is? Redeemer. Redeemer. Naomi recognized that she, this couldn't go on forever, that Ruth had to be taken care of, that one day she was going to die. And if she dies, if Ruth is just this single Moabite woman living outside of Bethlehem, this is not a good situation for them. So she sent her to go lay at the feet of Boaz. And when Boaz sees that she's there, he's shocked at first, but then he realized what was happening. And this is important. He realized what was happening as the work of God. He recognized that Ruth was a woman of integrity. In fact, he says, everyone knows 
that you are a woman of integrity, that she was faithful to Naomi and faithful to God. Now, let's get back to this whole relation thing. Because Boaz was related to Naomi, he was in line to become the guardian redeemer of everything that Elimelech had. Okay, so his property, uh, his land, uh, his uh, Naomi and Ruth and all these things, all those things were considered under the house of Elimelech. And Boaz is related to Elimelech, so he is in line to be able to do something about their whole situation. Now, normally, a Jew could not marry a Moabite because the Moabites, and this, this is where we get back to the bad blood, the Moabites had denied bread and water to the Jewish people when they wanted to travel through their territory on the way to the land of Israel. And then if that were enough, Balak, the king of Moab, had also hired the Midianite prophet Balaam to curse the Jewish people because that's what Balaam did. It was like his specialty was cursing people. And so he was hired to curse the Jewish people by the king of Moab. So there was all of this bad blood. And because of this, Ruth, the Moabite princess, would have been excluded from even the possibility of a marriage to Boaz. In other words, she would have been a throwaway. Because she is from Moab, and these are people that we don't like. If not for this very sort of obscure, little-known tradition. And the tradition wrote that Moabites and Ammonites, out of, out of the marriage exclusion principle, because they had not participated in any way in the anti-Israel crimes mentioned above. So in other words, as time went on and more generations passed, someone decided, well, just because they're Moabite or Amorite doesn't mean that they can't be a part of the redeeming process. After all, did they deny food and bread or food and or bread and water? No. Did they hire Balaam? No. So we'll allow for this to happen. So these are the two <laughs> these are the two neighboring nationalities that are in the law to be redeemed. And Ruth again just happens to be one of them. Just happens to be one of them. Now, in a tribal culture like Israel, family members were expected to take care of relatives. We sort of talked about this a little bit, but this was especially true in the whole next of kin um, idea. The next of kin, a male, played an especially important role in Israel as this kinsman redeemer. Um, And he could be called upon to fulfill any one of these three specific duties uh, for his family. Number one, to redeem, which means to reclaim or to keep within the family um, property and or relatives. In Israel, all property was a family possession, an inheritance that dated back to the time of Joshua. If land or a relative was sold off to pay debt, it was the kinsman redeemer's job to pay off the debt and to bring those people or that land or that property back into the family. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, it was also the Redeemer's job to provide an heir through marriage. If a man died without an heir, it was his surviving brother's duty to marry the widow and provide an heir to carry on his brother's name and maintain his inheritance. And thirdly, the Redeemer could be called upon to avenge the unlawful death of a family member. Um, So they were sometimes called, in this case, the avenger of blood, And it was actually a legal function within the nation of Israel. 
that if the next person, if, if this person was killed and then the next person in line could come and avenge that person rightfully within the law of Israel. So this is the system that's set up. Okay? Now, Boaz hears all this from Ruth, and what does he say he wants to do? He wants to be the Redeemer. He wants to take everything back for Naomi, and he wants to have Ruth as his wife. But there's a problem. There is one other person in line before him. And that person in line before him actually has first claim on all of this. So he has to go to him first. So Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer, who was in front of him, he had mentioned, came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. I love all of the like behind the scenes, we know what's going on, you don't know what's going on thing that's happening here. Anyway, Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And he instantly says what? I will redeem it. I will buy the land. We will keep the land in our family. It will be mine. Hooray for me. Then Boaz said, <clears throat> however, I'm adding the however just because it's implied. He at least cleared his throat. Can we just, <clears throat> right? He at least did one of those. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption of transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Craig, you work in banking. Just take off your shoe. Pass it to someone else, right? So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. And everybody cries out, yes, we have witnesses in the name of the Lord. Do you see what happened? Boaz became the kinsman redeemer through the law of God. Because of what he was able to not only, because of that, he was able to not only keep Naomi's land for Naomi and Ruth, but he was also able to marry Ruth. And he is the smartest man around (laughs) because he recognizes what he had in Ruth. You had a kinsman redeemer who cared about the land, but didn't care about the people. But what is Boaz? He is a kinsman redeemer who cares about the people, and the land is a throw-in. It is simply a vehicle for him to get Ruth as his wife. This is what he wants. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. Okay, sorry, I get ahead of myself. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Okay, so in conclusion this morning, there's a few things I want to point out to you. And the first thing is this. For as much as we have seen this negative cycle repeat itself within the people of Israel, we see something so important about God in this story. And that is this. When someone stands up for God, he claims them. Doesn't matter who they are. When someone stands up and throws their lot in with God, God claims them. These two women should not have been a blip on the radar of the big story. I don't mean to be calloused, but ultimately they should not matter. They should be forgotten. Naomi left in times of famine and ran away and lost everything. Ruth was a Moabite woman who wasn't even a part of the nation of Israel. And yet we have a whole book in the Bible with Ruth's name on it. What is remarkable about the story, even given the broader context, is the faithfulness of these two women. They love one another and they love God. And that is the underlying heartbeat to this story. They are faithful. They act with integrity. They rely on God even in the middle of all these things. And because of that, God responds in their lives. I also have to imagine that this whole scenario is a lot more what God thought his people would be like than what they actually were. Because you see this really interesting thing happen. These obscure laws that God set up with his people that they haven't really followed ends up redeeming two widows when people actually carry it out. Saves their lives. Gives them renewed purpose and meaning in family. When God gave instructions to the Israelites, they probably didn't understand how all this was going to work, but God knew how all this was going to work. And he knew why he needed to put these things in there. It's why he put these rules into place that we see play out throughout this story. To leave food behind in your fields for the poor. So that they can come behind you and can pick up what they need. To take care of each other's families and to redeem those who have lost much. This was his dream for his people. That they would live this way together. And in the story of Ruth, we get to see it work, which is an incredible moment for us. But here's what we really see. I think this is part of the story, the main part. Ruth is faithful to God. Therefore, God claims her as his own. And it makes all the difference to have God on your side. It makes all the difference in the world to have God on your side. 
Remember, this is his story. And when someone is faithful to God, he is faithful right back to them. When someone is willing to throw their lives in, God says, I will take that life and I will bless you because of it. And here is something remarkable. Ruth doesn't just have a son. She has a son who has a son who had a king. Oh, and then Jesus is also a part of that. Who comes through the line of Ruth. And this is my favorite part. When you are faithful to God, even if you are a Moabite widow, and you stick with him, you get to become part of the promise. You get to become part of the promise. Ruth is written into the story of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And what did it take for her to be written into the story? She had faith in God. She believed in Him. She put herself in, and God made her part of the story. I love that. I love that. You know what we forget? We forget the fact that there are people in this world who, do, who are not part of the story, who have pulled themselves out of the story, who don't understand how the story could change their lives, who don't understand why they need to be a part of this, who are on the fringes or on the outside and do not know God. But maybe if, like Naomi, we could live in such a way that we invite people into the presence of God, then they too can become a part of the story. No matter where they've been or what they've done or who they are, their entire identity can be changed from a Moabite widow to the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. We have an amazing God. Amen? Amen. And he is rewriting our story constantly. May we invite others to be a part of it as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We are grateful for this story which speaks to us about faithfulness, about humility, about how you, what a difference it makes to have you on our side. How you worked in the life of these two women and how you bless them because of their faithfulness to you. God, we want to be people who do not forget. We want people who remember. And God, may we realize, as these Ruth and Naomi did, that having you on our side makes all the difference in the world. For you are the redeemer of lives. No matter how much has been lost, no matter how much is, you are the redeemer of lives. And we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. If you have any need for prayer or encouragement this morning, we want to invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.